Our evening is going to focus very much on a travel narrative that the, um, the gospel writer Luke produced. But I want to introduce it in a rather personal way, if I may. I want to take you back to my student days because something uh, of a coincidence occurred uh, that uh, fits in quite well with what I want to introduce this evening. I want to take you back all those years ago to June 1976. And in June of that year, I ended up going on a journey that took me to Israel. It actually took me uh, to the very north of Israel, to near a town called Kiryat Shmona. Um, it's almost on the border with Lebanon, and it's a, a relatively uh, small town. Uh, and nearby, uh, the reason for going there was that I was to spend some time on a kibbutz, um, a kibbutz known as Dan, not very far from the biblical site of Dan, right up in the very north of Israel. And uh, in the background there, you can see Mount Hermon. Uh, um, we weren't very far from the Lebanese border. Um, at this stage, there were actually terrorist attacks from Lebanon into northern Israel. And I wonder if it was because I was from Belfast that they thought um, the folks who arranged for you to go to a kibbutz, I didn't know, I had no choice in where I was going. I ended up in this kibbutz not having planned to be there, but uh, I ended up in it. And um, it was a rather surreal experience because here you had uh, a Jewish community that at night had men going into these watchtowers. And there was a wire fence the whole way round the kibbutz. And uh, um, every time you saw a man walking around one of the uh, Israelis, they would be carrying an Uzi machine gun. And you didn't have to travel very far to uh, see the evidence of the war that had taken place. Uh, not so many years before when the Israelis had taken over part of the Golan Heights from Syria. Uh, so it was a rather unusual place to be uh, back in 1976. Um, 76 was also the year when the Israelis uh, flew the whole way to Uganda, uh, to Entebbe, to release the hundred hostages who had been captured on an Air France flight that had been hijacked. Uh, so it was an interesting time to be in Israel when such things were happening. Not very far from Kibbutz Dan is Caesarea Philippi. Uh, it was only three miles away. Uh, I can remember walking there one day to visit Caesarea Philippi. Um, it it uh, has the modern name of Banyas. And uh, close by, you actually have what uh, would be part of the Jordan River beginning. Um, the, the waters were extremely cold. Uh, 
There was one occasion when I was persuaded to uh, jump in, and I was in for no length of time, I can tell you. It made the North Coast uh, seem really warm. Um, so it seems strange. I was there for, I was on the kibbutz for a month. There was no rain at all. It was the summertime, and yet the river water was freezing. Well, towards the end of June, uh, I, had, I had flown out to Tel Aviv. I had been collected at the airport in Tel Aviv and taken up to the north of Israel, up to Kibbutz Dan. And then I was due to travel from Dan the whole way down to Jerusalem. And this is more or less the journey that Jesus and his disciples took. Um, so from Kiryat Shimona, from that region, um, I ended up getting on to what nowadays seems like a rather um, um, flimsy bus, an egged bus that was going to take me from the north of Israel the whole way down, down the Jordan Valley to Jericho, and then up to Jerusalem. Um, I can remember having an orange-colored rucksack that got piled up on top of the bus at the very back. There was kind of nowhere underneath the bus to store luggage in those days. And uh, we traveled down. The journey took us down past the Sea of Galilee. Uh, We passed through Tiberias. Uh, I think we possibly stopped there. The journey is about 140 miles or so. So it's a a journey that the bus was going to do in four or five hours. Uh, So it wasn't a particularly long journey. We traveled on down, down the Jordan Valley. I can remember looking out and seeing the border between Israel and Jordan and um, Israeli soldiers patrolling along the border. And then we traveled from Jericho up to Jerusalem. And this was really something of a surprise to me because as we traveled up, I, I, I began to realize how barren the Judean wilderness was and uh, this is where the, uh, the man in the story of the Good Samaritan ended up being attacked and robbed as he traveled up through, or as he traveled down through this area. I was traveling up. Um, as you go up the, the road from Jericho to Jerusalem, um, eventually you come to sea level. It's uh, rather surprising uh, in one sense to, to encounter this. And just after this, the journey got really interesting because the bus broke down. And uh, we looked at one another, and then another egghead bus drew up behind us. And the driver beckoned to all of us to get out of the bus and get into the other bus. Um, Well, the other bus was already full, and um, I hadn't yet mastered the Israeli technique of uh, not queuing. So I happened to be the last person onto the bus, um, which turned out to be really interesting because I was standing up beside the driver as we drove up into Jerusalem, and I had a kind of interesting view of encountering the city. And we didn't come into Jerusalem the normal way, at least the way you normally come in if you're coming in from Tel Aviv into the modern city. We, We ended up coming in past the walls of the old city. Uh, past the the Dome of the Rock. And uh, it was a slightly more interesting way to come into Jerusalem past uh, the Mount of Olives and uh, um, uh, arriving eventually at the bus station in Jerusalem. 
Well, my journey was done in less than a day. Um, We're going to explore a journey that Jesus undertook with the disciples that lasted probably for quite a number of days. It certainly wasn't done in a few days. Let me remind you of something that uh, Luke, the author of the gospel, tells us right at the very beginning. Luke was well aware that other people had already written accounts of the life of Jesus. He begins with these words, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, Since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good almost to me, uh, sorry, also to me, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. It's generally acknowledged that Luke used Mark's gospel as one of the sources when it comes to writing his gospel. Luke follows the same geographical outline that Mark has. uh, Jesus' ministry in Galilee, and then his journey to Jerusalem where we encounter Jesus being crucified. Interestingly, however, Luke's gospel adds something at the very end that's missing from Mark's gospel. Because Luke doesn't want to end just simply with the cross and the resurrection. Luke wants to highlight the importance of the ascension of Jesus. Jesus being taken up to heaven. He mentions this not only at the end of his gospel, but also, if you remember, in the book of Acts. It begins with the ascension of Jesus. Well, very strikingly, whenever Luke begins the travel narrative section of his gospel, he begins by noting the reason for Jesus going to Jerusalem. When the days drew near for him to be taken up. Luke wants to suggest, I think, that Jesus is not simply thinking about going to Jerusalem, but he's also thinking about his ascension. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. He sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. Luke wants to give special attention to this journey that Jesus makes to Jerusalem. 
It's no ordinary journey. Jesus is going there in order to ascend to heaven. I've mentioned that Luke borrows material from Mark. But as you'll see from this particular table, there's a section of Luke's gospel that contains nothing found in Mark. Um, From chapter 9, verse 51, through to chapter 18, Luke has put together material that is not found in Mark. Um, Perhaps you can see it maybe more clearly in this diagram. This section of new material that's not in Mark is the travel narrative. This is what we're going to be reading as a congregation over the coming weeks. It makes up almost half of Luke's gospel. And Luke occasionally, um, as he presents this material to us, gives a few details regarding the places that Jesus visited. Um, His comments are exceptionally brief. Um, Right at, um, at one point, we're told... Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. Interestingly, right at the very beginning of the travel narrative, Luke records that Jesus called together 70 disciples. Um, He put them in pairs, and then he told them to go to various towns and villages to prepare for his coming. Um, So, um, if nothing else, we can work out that on his journey towards Jerusalem, Jesus stopped off in at least 35 towns or villages. And the people there had already been prepared by his disciples for his coming. Jesus wasn't just looking to get to Jerusalem as quickly as possible He wanted to use this journey as an opportunity to tell people about his mission and to challenge them about being his followers. Um, A little bit further on, Luke records that um, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. And then... Picking up the story in chapter 18, as Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. Um, So we get a little bit of a sense of the journey from these brief comments that Luke makes. But Luke's not interested in telling us about the geography of the journey He's not interested in describing the villages and towns that Jesus went into. Throughout all of this section, he is primarily interested in giving us the teaching of Jesus. Um, I happen to have, because um, it's got very large print and it's easy to read, uh, an NIV Bible that uh, has red letters. Imagine some of you might well have a Bible like this. It has the words of Jesus in red. Um, 
It's not the kind of Bible that I would... Um, that would be my choice. I wouldn't, I wouldn't automatically go for a red-letter Bible, but I have this one, and I tend to use it because of the large print. Interestingly, in the travel narrative, nearly every page is full of red print. There is very little that's in black, indicating the words of the narrative that Luke is telling. It's almost entirely made up of the teaching of Jesus. And as Jesus travels along, I think he's very deliberately teaching his disciples to prepare them for his departure from earth. He knows where he's going. He's going away. And the disciples need to be prepared for this. And as he teaches them, it comes across that Luke captures for us the mission and teaching of Jesus. In particular, as you read through the travel narrative, you will discover that Luke gives emphasis to the idea that Jesus is the Savior of the world who has come to seek and to save the lost. Um, right at the very heart of this travel narrative, you have three parables that all have to do with something that's lost. The lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. And uh, Luke wants to draw out this idea that Jesus, as Savior of the world, has come seeking those who are lost. Luke's travel narrative contains much material that's not found in the other Gospels. Uh, we ought to be very thankful to Luke for preserving for us such wonderful parables as the Good Samaritan, the Prodigal Son, the Lost Sheep, the Great Banquet, the Rich Fool. He even gives us the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Without Luke's travel narrative, we would, bereft, we would be bereft of these things. One of the striking features of this travel narrative is the number of incidents that bring together contrasting people. Frequently, the religious are contrasted with the irreligious or those who are on the margins of society. Often this brings into view issues of social class and wealth. The story of the Good Samaritan has a priest and a Levite Men associated with the temple coming along the road and ignoring the man who has been attacked and robbed. And who's the helper? Well, it's this uh, heretical Samaritan who comes and helps out. Or think of the story of uh, Zacchaeus a beggar 
sitting outside the gate of a wealthy man's house. Or recall the story of the tax collector and the Pharisee going up to the temple to pray. And the Pharisee makes his way up to the front and uh, pours out from his heart all the wonderful things that he does as a good Pharisee. And the tax collector stands at the back and mumbles a few words, conscious of his inadequacy. As you read through the travel narrative, you will be struck by how often different classes and groups of people are brought together. Luke very deliberately highlights this. As he does so, um, there are two themes which I think are especially relevant in Luke's thinking. And I suspect they probably are themes that are relevant for you and for me. I'd be surprised if they aren't. The themes that come out are these. Prosperity and religious pride. Prosperity and religious pride. Even in the story of the Good Samaritan... It's worth appreciating that the generosity of the Samaritan is highlighted by Jesus. Not only does he bandage up the wounded man and put him on his donkey and take him to an inn, but when he gets there, he cares for him and he pays the innkeeper to look after this stranger. He offers him two denarii. And then he reassures him that um, if it costs more than this, he'll meet the cost. Elsewhere, as you work through these chapters, you'll discover that the theme of generosity to the poor keeps reappearing. Let me pick out one short passage. Again, the thing that's interesting about Jesus when you read through these chapters is that he's not someone who shouts at the opposition from a distance. You discover him having meals, not only with tax collectors and sinners, but also with Pharisees. So, um, he's been... In the synagogue, when Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him. So he went in and reclined at the table. But the Pharisee was surprised when he noticed that Jesus did not first wash before the meal. Now, the significance of this is that uh, Pharisees were very concerned about ritual purity about being ritually clean. And if you had been out mixing with people, perhaps there was the possibility that you had touched someone who was unclean. And so before you have a meal, you ritually wash 
wash your hands so that not for, not for hygiene as such, but in order to be ritually clean. Jesus does not do that. And then he speaks to the Pharisee. Um, um, if you ever think about having Jesus for a meal, think twice. What does he say to the host? The Lord said to him, Now then, you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people. Did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? But now, as for what is inside you, be generous to the poor, and everything will be clean for you. How do you cleanse the inside? Generosity to the poor. Um, a few chapters on, uh, you'll discover that Luke has a very brief comment that the Pharisees loved money. They weren't only very religious, but they were also very wealthy or sought to be wealthy. And so Jesus tells the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And if you keep on with the journey and manage to get to the end of it, you'll discover that uh, once you've got to Jerusalem, uh, sorry, once you've got to Jericho, Jesus encounters a rich young ruler who's wealthy. And what does he tell him? Sell all you have and give to the poor. And then Luke throws in the interesting little comment. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. You'll discover as you read through the travel narrative that it's challenging. It may not be a lot to read, but let me, let me tell you, as you read it and reflect on it, I suspect most of us will find it challenging. What about our wealth? What about our religiousness? Well, Jesus has a great deal to say as far as that's concerned. I want to give you a few minutes, perhaps you may have questions that you'd like to ask about this travel narrative. Um, but let me finish just by asking you, challenging you, um, to make a commitment to reading through the travel narrative. Um, go on this journey with Jesus. Listen to him. Let him challenge you. Let him shape your life. You'll be so much the richer for it. Well, 
I hope that gives you a little bit of a feel uh, for what's ahead, why this travel narrative in Luke is in some way significant, important, and why we've picked up on it as something to engage with as a congregation over the coming weeks. Now, I'm going to be brave and see if anybody wants to ask anything just about the travel narrative, about Luke's gospel, or the like. Steve, are you? You're going to get a microphone, oh dear. Well, uh, Steve, get some microphone. This is your opportunity. He's got it now. So uh, um, I remember Hard Lewis uh, commenting, who would like to ask the second question? <laughs> oh, David's going to be brave. Thank you, David. Um, Desi, sorry, I wasn't watching your slides closely enough. Um, I know the intention is to keep reading beyond the end of the travel narrative uh, this in this Lent period. Yes. But uh, where does the travel narrative, as you defined it, end exactly? Okay. Um, the travel narrative itself, um, at least the material that is unique to Luke's gospel, or um, that's not found in Mark, uh, ends in chapter 18, verse 14. Um, you, you will discover that... Um, just, just immediately after that, you have the story of the rich young ruler coming. Uh, and that's also found in Mark's gospel. Okay. Interestingly, uh, the question, do you remember the question that the rich young ruler puts to Jesus? Um, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Okay. You'll discover that the same question actually is introduced at the beginning of the travel narrative. A teacher of the law comes to Jesus and asks the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus then asks him, well, what does the law teach? And he says, well, it's love God, love your neighbor. And then uh, the, the guy kind of feels, well, I've got to, I can't stop at this point. I've got to have another question. And then he asks the question, who is my neighbor? And that leads you into the story of the Good Samaritan. Um, um, now, it's, it's very interesting. You'll find that the similar things keep coming up. Uh, but this, the, this idea of what must I do to inherit eternal life? Um, running through the travel narratives, there are actually uh, occasional references to, um, um, to, to heaven, Jesus is on, a way, on his way to heaven, and you'll discover that every so often you'll get uh, someone asking about eternal life, uh, or Jesus referring to uh, the resurrection of the righteous, uh, because he's preparing, he's wanting to prepare his uh, followers for, in a sense, where he's going, and have them think, think about that. David, I've gone on past your, answering your question. Any other questions? Or... Nobody else wants to jump in. Well, maybe as you work your way through the material, the questions will come to mind. And, and I hope that we'll have an opportunity uh, with one another to talk about this material. Uh, that's part of the reason for doing it as a community. 
that uh, we can share with each other what uh, God may say to us as we encounter Jesus and his teaching in these chapters. Uh, And I suspect if we're honest about it, we'll find ourselves having difficult questions to answer in terms of how we live our lives, how we relate to other people. How much space do we give to the poor and to those who are on the margins? Uh, There's a lot there for us to reflect on.